Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this weekend's UFC card. Here are your hosts, Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivisection. With me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, as always, Connor Rebush. We're here talking about UFC 282 going down this Saturday, December 10th at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. Headlined by a light heavyweight title fight between Jan Blahovich and Magomed Ankalaev. Right now, we're talking about the prelim cards or the prelim fights with a featured prelim bout between Jairzinho Rosenstreak and Chris Daukaus on an otherwise a, a, a prelim card with a couple of incredibly great highlight fights mm-hmm. that I otherwise wouldn't care about. Yeah. These would be very, very good. Uh, a few of these would be like fight night main card fights. I mean, Chris Curtis, Joaquin Buckley, and that's and the one. Tillo Hernandez. Those yeah. to me are both. They could be main card fights on a pay per view. Sure. I, yeah. Curtis Buckley to me could headline a fight night card. It wouldn't be the best headliner, the most notable headliner in the world, but it is an awesome fight. Yeah, it's much more, it feels much more like sort of co-main material or featured prelim material here. Yeah, Yeah. it's a good fight. Yeah. And otherwise, we got a bunch of prospects that the UFC signed over the summer Mm -hmm. and that they're looking to uh, see if they can show them off or not. Mm -hmm. But anyway, of course, the heavyweights get the uh, featured prelim slot. Rosenstreich, Dacus. um, uh, I've accidentally started pronouncing his name correctly, even though I've yeah, uh, I, I was saying Dowkhouse. I've been saying yeah. Dowkhouse for so long, and there's like one guy who gets really mad about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suspect that guy will stop caring as both the Dawkins brothers like burn out. Probably <laughs> yeah. flame out of relevance, but they really had like the you know the uh-huh. the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long kind of thing going on here. <laughs> yeah, Kyle Dawkins lived his life like a candle in the wind. Yeah, um, snuffed. He fought your fights <laughs> like a candle in the wind. Um. Anyway, uh, you know, then neither of them is that good. No, yeah. Uh, Dawkus, big, big Dawkus, big I'm Chris. Feeling, I'm starting to feel bad for Kyle, though. Big Chris oh, yeah, will be fine, yeah. but Kyle, like, he is, it is clear from his last fight that he has yeah. hit uh, Josh Koscheck territory, mm. and he did not get any moment of Josh Koscheck's success on the way. At least Josh Koscheck, yeah. like, the fight that killed him was a title fight yeah against gsp and he i mean he never had cause checks elite specialization in any one thing yeah i know i know he but was like, never the kind of athlete cause yeah. was i'm just saying that if you have to have a fight ruin your career yeah let it be a fight against gsp yeah don't let it be a fight against roman delizzi right that is not the fight that you want to define the rest of your career yeah, and you don't you don't want to you don't want to go out having been the appetizer to Roman Delizze's deconstructed sandwich, <laughs> deconstructed post fight sandwich. Because uh, he is he is going to like, I mean he that fight he had last week against Eric Anders. Every time Anders hit him clean, you could see yeah. him start pawing at his face, and it's just like, oh no, yeah, this is psychological trauma has been has been acquired 
and mm-hmm. he's a broken man. And I guess it's sad too, because like he he is actually like the good one of the brothers. Yes, yes. he's actually like a technician. He's he's got a yeah. a, a broad range of skills. Um, Big Docus is like he he hits hard enough for heavyweight. He have, is having the prototypical yeah. guy who hits the who hits the UFC with a really distinct skill and shocks a bunch of people. And yeah. then everybody figures it out and then immediately starts wrecking. Yeah. Him. And exactly the kind of that guy who like uh, has always appeared and then disappeared from heavyweight in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Heavyweight is made. The lower half of the UFC's heavyweight division is made of this guy. Yes. You know, um, and yeah, he just doesn't bring that much to the table. Um, he's yeah. He's got reasonably fast hands. He hits hard. Um, He's not all that good a boxer. No. He's, he like really has to be aggressive and overwhelming people to be effective. Uh-huh. And when he isn't, he has very little of the sort of connective tissue skills that m- make somebody an actually good boxer. Doesn't have the footwork, doesn't have the control of distance, doesn't, doesn't have the defense. Yeah. Um, he really has to be catching you in a blitz. Right. And if he's not catching you in a blitz, he will punch himself out of his own range and have to restart and try to try it all over again. Yeah. Or he's just going to be getting hit a bunch. So this could be one of the terrible Rosenstrike fights, or it could be one of the ones where he obliterates his opponent in the first round. It could be one of those many, many fights where like sort of both things happen. Yeah. Um, but uh, either way, it is going to be a Rosenstrike win. Yeah, you got to pick Rosenstrike just because there is a fight that Ro- that Rosenstreet can have that he's pretty calm about. Yes. And it's one where he plants and meets somebody and hits them right as they hit him. Yeah. And as long as he can land in that moment and doesn't have somebody in him in front of him who will just keep throwing, like Alexander Volkov just took it took his shot right on the chin and was just like, well, I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. And that worked great for Volkov, but everybody else tends to get hit really hard in that moment and hurt. And that, you know, could happen. Dawkins has done it to some less powerful fighters than Rosenstrike, but uh, you know, it helps that Volkov's height is measured in stories. You know, like he's got yeah. some physical advantages that a guy like Dawkins simply doesn't. Um, yeah. And then guys like Blades and Gone and Blades and Gone can, you know, could bring a whole different thing to the table. Yeah. Of Gone could be cautious from range and just outpoint uh, Rosenstrike for his static counters only game. Yeah. And Blades could uh, do a little of that and then marry it up with some with with wrestling whenever he needed to. Yeah, Dawkins is way closer to Augusto Sakai or Junior Albini than he yeah. is the guys who. He's going to try to to Francis and Ganu his way through this, and Volkov did that too. But yep, you know, Overeem, Junior dos Santos, Sakai, Albini, many other fighters have tried this, and mm-hmm. most of them get knocked out. Yep. So it'll be fun. It'll be a fun round. Will it? Yeah. I mean, if, if Dowcast is going to get knocked, like he has to start fast. But will he? 
I would assume so. All I'm saying is the dude thought he was going to become a boxer overnight in his fights with Lewis and Blades. He reached a certain level, and he's like, I'm going to be technical. It's and true. He <laughs> quickly found out that actually he's not technical, and he has to bum rush people. Um, and I just I, don't know if he's going to have the nerve to bum rush Rosenstrike. Yeah, yeah, I think he will. I think, cause, I mean, even if he's not, even if he doesn't, I don't think there's a version of Dark House, even a very, uh, even a very, uh, slight, you know, very tentative Dark House. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any version of him that will ever not throw it all. Mm-hmm. Won't leave something, try to set some kind of table. And, Rosenstreich, he, you know, he, he has, he, he's been hurt and he's had t- tough fights. But if you throw at Rosenstreich, he will throw back. If you throw anything at him, he will throw back as long yeah. as you're in range to be hit. That's all he really wants to do. And so even if Dowcast is like, oh, you know what? I'm going to go out here and I'm going to try and jab and low kick this guy. I don't think he can do it well enough to not get, just get hit for it. You know? Yeah. That's fair enough. I think it might be terrible. Either way, Rosenstruck's going to win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, odds on the bout. Rosenstruck is the favorite. Opened at minus 160, dropped to minus 186. Currently up at minus 173. House opened at plus 140, jumped up to plus 154. It's currently back down at plus 144. So those odds are staying close. I get it. They both lost. And... Rosenstreich has lost the way Dowkhouse wins, and Dowkhouse has lost the way Rosenstreich wins. I just think that there's a lot more fundamentally functional about Rosenstreich's game. Mm-hmm. There's a version of Rosenstreich as a fight he can have that he is very calm and comfortable and collected in, and there is no fight like that for Dowkhouse. The fight he wins is a fight that is something where he is initiating chaos. Correct. It's not a comfortable place for him. It is just what, you know, it, it has just been his path. His, his ability to be fast and surprise people yeah. gave him an edge. I think it was a reasonably comfortable place for him when he believed that it was going to work. Yeah. But I, like, again, I think there's been a clear difference in how he has approached the yeah. better people that his early wins earned him. I'm just saying that it was never, even in that, it was never safe. It was never. No, like, no, certainly not. You know, it was, it was something maybe he th- he was really comfortable initiating that chaos, but it was chaos. Whereas for Rosenstreich, yeah. like his version of a comfortable fight is he waits and he's on the back fo- foot and he's pretty static in place. And you bring something to him and he has picked out the perfect counter and yeah. it is a very safe controlled way to fight he's a venus fly trap yeah he doesn't need a fly like there's sunlight he'll be fine yeah <laughs> but if the fly comes to him mm, yeah he's gonna eat it yeah exactly it's it's a it is a beatable way of fighting but it is not an unsafe way of fighting correct all right that brings us to a band weight bout Raul Rosas Jr., Jay Perrin, and um, 
I get why the UFC signed Raul Rosas Jr. Mm-hmm. I understand it. I understand the thought process. Like, it is if you are a sports organization, this is the kind of thing that active scouting should get you. Yeah. You know, if you're going to run, because UFC, obviously, they are, in general, they want to be seen as a league. They want to be seen as the NFL or the, uh, you know, NBA. But the operation is much more on like a New York Yankees kind of way of like people are showing up to watch Team UFC in in their vision. Right. And they are signing people to contracts. The NFL doesn't sign anyone to a contract. You know, teams do that. Right. So if you're if you're running a team, if you're running an organization, you have scouts going out there looking for kids like Raul Roses Jr. And you're snapping them up and you're being like, okay, well, we're going to take a bet on your potential and see what shakes out of it. Thing is, is that like, So this kid really should just be staying on the regionals. Mm-hmm. He's not bad, but he's in a very Chase Hoopery kind of place. And he is flying really high on a feeling of being unbeatable. And he's a pretty messy fighter for that. You know? Mm-hmm. And maybe it'll all pay off for him over time, but... I have I have many notes of caution to sound about throwing a is he 17 yet? Oh god. Um He's 18. He's 18 now. Okay. Well, I have many notes of caution still. He was 17 when he got he signed to the contender series. Yeah. I have many notes of caution of throwing an 18-year-old into the UFC bantamweight division. You know, mm-hmm. that is a men manly men's division, even if they are all five foot seven. Uh, it is a lot of brutal athletes in that division. Yeah. And how many, how many times have we had occasion recently to just discuss the idea that, yeah, like, I, I don't know. It's just not a good idea for people with this level of experience to be in the UFC. Yeah, and and it's just I I hate seeing teenagers. I hate seeing teenagers turn pro in this sport. It's so hard on your body, and there's also a feeling of like, you know what? What did you learn as a teenager? Like, what skill base did you start with? What what did you come into? Mm-hmm. What kind of training were you getting? Were you at a top gym learning striking and wrestling from all the best coaches out there, the kind of coaches you would get if you went to like, you know, uh, Penn state. Well, not maybe, maybe not. Don't go to Penn state, but like if you're going to, <laughs> you know, if you're going to like Edinburgh and getting like a super good collegiate wrestling, uh, edu- education, Mm-hmm. If you're learning to wrestle at a really high level like that, are you getting that training coming up as a teenager? I I mostly doubt it. 
in MMA. Like if you, you MMA is not going to offer you that kind of elite wrestling training, or if they do, it's going to be, you know, you're going to have to search it out. And, or are you going to be getting, you know, if you came through as a, like a, you know, from like a big boxing gym or from a, mm-hmm. a really good kickboxing camp or kickboxing lineage, are you going to be getting that training just starting cold in MMA as a kid? You're probably getting the the jujitsu training. I'm, I, you know, there's a lot, a, a pretty close knit marriage of jujitsu and MMA yeah. in that way. And he certainly looks like a great grappler, but I have a lot of concerns and I, about MMA natives turning pro as teenagers. It just yeah. gives me pause. That all that said, Raul Rosas will absolutely beat Jay Perrin. Yeah. And he'll probably make it look pretty easy. And there aren't enough Jay Perrins in the UFC to gradually yeah. develop a uh, Raul Rosas Jr., but um, they'll give you one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, like, they might even give you three or four, but at but, some point the J run out of J parents and uh, you better be extremely good by then or you're going to burn out. Yeah. I mean, like Victor Henry is sitting right there at one and one in the UFC. Right. You know, is he going to be the next fighter you face at one and oh, might right. be. And Victor Henry's really damn good. He's extremely good. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of worry. Um Perrin is a pocket puncher, and that's all he does. Mm-hmm. He does not have any kind of range striking game. He does not, and and that because he doesn't have any kind of range striking game, he's very and he's a headhunter. He's very predictable, and he can be caught really clean in the pocket in exchanges because you always pretty much know where he is and know what he's aiming for. And he's very susceptible to being wrestled and taken down. Because you know exactly where he is and what he's aiming for. Mm-hmm. It is exactly the kind of fighter who's going to come in and throw a one-two and you can duck right under it, you know? Or throw a, a couple of hard hooks and you can duck right under it and take him down. And that's that's just playing prime into what Roses wants to do. Right. And we'll probably get him a pretty easy win. I'm just... Decent takedown artist. Yep. Suffocating grappler. Yep. Yeah, he's going to win. Yeah, I just, you know, I wish somebody, I wish somebody in this, around this kid could pump his brakes for him. Yeah, yeah. Like, man, you know, if you just wait until you're like 23 or 24, even, you'll have a much better idea of how to handle your body, of how to be a adult who manages their money even a little bit. Yeah. And who can take care and manage a career at this level where, you know, you're gonna, you, you might walk out of this without the ability to do anything else. Right. Yeah. It's both a good and a bad thing. I mean, it's, 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 it's often a good thing for viewers that there essentially is no such thing as a managed MMA career. Yeah. Because like, um, you know, in, in like a in boxing, you get you get several bad outcomes because of the carefulness yeah. of management. Like you you get fighters who ap- never fight anybody. Yep. Um, and then you also get a bunch of complete like uh, like cardboard cutout fighters 
who never fight anybody until their manager cashes them in yep. on one big payday. And that's when you find out that they actually haven't been good the entire time. Yeah. Um, that doesn't really get to happen in the UFC. No. But for the fighters, like you want a little bit of care taken about this is your job. So uh, this is your career. You want there to be like a path that you can follow, that you can progress. And yeah. um, certainly organizations like the UFC are not designed to do that. Yeah. You don't want to see guys get Jordan Mean death there. Yeah. You know, like what did Jordan Mean walk away from a 10 plus year MMA career? That he started when he was 17 with. That's that's the thing. So, mm-hmm. picking Raul Rosas Jr., I get why the UFC signed him. They should be snapping kids like this up, but they should also be putting them in, like, you know, in development. You don't, you don't, isn't there like a, isn't there a way they can, like, contract them with like cage warriors or LFA or something like there are I think they just realized that it's not worth the hassle you know they did it for I like that a was season. the point of feeder leagues like I, they I just, did I, it I don't for know. a season or two of contender series and I think they just realized that it, it just wasn't worth the hassle their churn their need of fighters is too continuous for them to be playing around with having development contracts yeah that's true so I didn't realize they even tried that. They had like oh, yeah. a they had like a secondary contract thing going on on mm-hmm. contender series. Yeah. Oh, seems it like a great good idea to me. Threw it and he had to like fight on the contender series like three times. And they've put other fighters through. They would they would be like, oh, yeah, no, we're going to put him on a development contract. And then they would go out and, you know. Oh, right. Yeah. Fight and get paid a couple times in a in an associated affiliate league. Mm-hmm. And it just it it just didn't. I think it. They just learned that it was just a big hassle, and it didn't make any sense for what their business model is yeah. is built around. Yeah. So. Still, the trial by fire organization. Yep. Development is not. <laughs> again, not what it's designed to do. Yeah. Roses has opened at minus two hundred, dropped to minus two sixty five. Currently up at two minus two forty two. Jay Perrin opened at plus 170, jumped up to plus 225, and is currently at plus 195. All right. That brings us to a middleweight bout. Edmund Shabazian, Dolce Lungiambula. Speaking of guys who started really young and really could have used a little more time, Shabazian is... uh, coming back off of a year hiatus after losing three straight fights with two knockouts. Mm-hmm. I mean, both these guys. Yeah, well, Lungiambula, I mean, he's 35 and he entered MMA after a long judo career. It's not really, you know. Mm-hmm. He is coming off three straight losses, but he was never a prospect, really. Oh, uh, fair, yeah. I just mean that this is just a, you know, two two guys who have thus far basically flamed out yes um being matched against each other um yeah i don't know yeah i mean obviously you look at shabazian and um even in his recent fights there still is like uh, essentially exactly the same amount of like potential yeah 
uh, it's only diminished by the fact that he has also uh, been revealed to have like the same flaw losing him basically every one of these fights. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to guess whether a guy can ever get over such a thing like that. I don't think it shouldn't really be instrumental to whether he wins or loses here. Yeah. Just because Lunjambula himself is so completely formless. Um, well, Lunjambula, I think, has been trying. He's been trying pretty decently to find better form as a high output striker. Yeah. It's just that finding that has also revealed, as so often happens with fighters who used to be incredibly tentative and yeah. learn that they have to be aggressive in the UFC. Finding that aggression usually starts to remind them why they started out so tentative because they start getting knocked out a bunch because they start putting themselves in danger all the time. Yeah. They start getting knocked out a bunch and or they start um, becoming, you know, each fight becomes a flash in the pan where they have a lot of energy and then they realize, oh, my God, I've been tense this whole time and I'm exhausted. And yeah. But that's the thing with Shabazian, too. I mean, he just... Yeah, that is definitely a problem for Shabazian. Gases and breaks at almost... It's like Conor McGregor-esque, the, the like predictability of the point in every fight at which he just collapses. Well, he's, he's kind of got a, a Kyle Dowkow's 2.0 thing going on. Mm, that's Where it. he's a fighter who, I think, at, coming up as an MMA native, yep. really had it ingrained to do everything. Yeah. So you see Shabazzian coming out of the gate and he's like firing slick one twos, looking, you know, firing kicks and then dra- grabbing the clinch, pushing guys up against the cage, getting them to the mat, getting to good grappling positions, jumping on submissions. And he's like this flow to him that you're just like, wow, yeah, that's, you know, yep. that kid's a hot prospect. And what happens when he loses is that. Fight, much like has happened with, you know, would happen with Kyle Dowkaus at a much lower level when Kyle Dowkaus would lose, is that fighters find a way to stop one part of that. Usually, what often happens is they will he he will get he's too aggressive and over pursues his submission attempt at the end of this train, and his opponent rips their way out of it, and then. He, he Shabazian tries to go through the progression again, and it, because opponents start to, you know, they ca- they catch on, they they adjust and adapt at least a bit. Mm-hmm. They start stopping his takedowns, and suddenly Shabazian is left with punch clinch, punch clinch, yeah, punch clinch. And he's also just, I mean, he does all these things maximum intensity. Like the guy's yeah. career has not equipped him to at all to deal with opponents who are suddenly just not getting blown out of the water. I mean, yeah. he's every single fight except for one against O and O gladiator challenge opponent, Anthony Thomas was a first round finish. Yeah. He spent his entire pre UFC career just wrecking people in the first round. And then he did that. Well, as we said about, um, uh, Chris Dawkins, um, and so many other um, fighters who make brief waves in the UFC, and then it turns out they have zero depth to their game, zero flexibility, yeah. and they can be solved by the same, 
even fighters who aren't like specialists in beating them in the way they lose once they see the game plan they're like oh i know how this guy loses and they go out there and beat them yeah it happens all the time with uh with ufc uh these ufc flashes in the pan and um yeah, it's it's just a different version of the same story of like fighter development. After the first yeah. round finishes stopped appearing, um, just everyone just found the same way to start crushing him. Yeah, even fighters like Jack Hermanson, who like you might expect would really struggle and flag early with the kind of aggression and athleticism that Shabazian brings to the table, just weather the storm and and Shabazian just does the job of he beats himself. Yeah, he, once once the takedown stopped becoming easy, he throws himself into the teeth of somebody, and he, there's just there's not a new setup. The speed, this you know, the speed starts to go. Opponents start to read the the striking exchanges he's bringing, the the pressure he's bringing, and they can just hurt him all the time, and he can't hurt them all the time because yeah. they've seen it before, and things go out of control pretty quickly. That said, Lunjiambula, like I say, he's been vacillating between not being active enough and being too active, both of which get him hurt. Yep. And he's very hurtable. Shabazian is not actually very hurtable. He's incredibly yep. durable. The fact that he's been knocked out twice is not a testament to him having a bad chin or anything close to it. It's just him running so far out of ideas that his opponent just starts and gassing. Absolutely they are both, gassing. Yeah. They, they are both a tried if ground and pounds. Yeah. That his opponent just starts teeing off on him relentlessly. And I just don't think Lunjimbula will get that far. hundred percent. This looks way more. Lunjimbula looks way more like the kind of guy who does get beaten early by Shabazian. Yeah. than the kind of guy who somehow like weathers a storm and craftily <laughs> takes advantage of Shabazian uh, destroying himself. Yeah, would love to see Shabazzian figure it out, but yeah, you know. it, again, it, it, you look at him in the first round of all these fights, and he still looks like that super impressive prospect he came to the UFC as. But you got to stop losing the exact same way, yeah. and it's three in a row now. I mean, it's I, I'm starting to to lose faith. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I, I we just talked about this. I don't want to harp on it again, but. There are reasons that I worry every time I see a young guy who is coming straight out of MMA, like who has been training MMA his whole life, yeah, turn pro without going and becoming like, oh, I've been training MMA my whole life, and I also went and wrestled collegiately, and I also went and, you know, not the Golden Gloves is any kind of gold standard, but you know, did yeah. some, learned another skill to a point that I could compete at it at a high level mm -hmm. specific a specific skill i went and you know did a bunch of muay thai and took muay thai fights or went yeah, we, we talked in the main card vivi about uh like how rare a fighter like bryce mitchell is and being a genuine all-terrain fighter mm -hmm. people just don't tend to work that way you no. know like the, the amount of pressure and anxiety and the number of things that you're worried about maybe happening to you you know, in any fighting sport, but in MMA in particular, yeah, like you, you really got to have a, you have to have a lane. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Shabazzian doesn't, he doesn't, or he doesn't know what his lane is. Yeah. 
All right. Odds on the bout. Shabazian is the favorite. Opened at minus 450, jumped up to minus 330, but it's up at minus 300 at the moment. So those odds starting got a little closer. Uh, Lunjimbul opened at plus 350, dropped to plus 255, is currently down at plus 240. Um, yeah, I mean, they have to get a little thinner. Shabazian's lost his last three fights with two finishes inside the distance. And Lunjimbula, I mean, the move to be more aggressive is good. He's powerful. He can hit really hard. You know, there there is there are opportunities for him to be a better fighter if his durability doesn't fa- fail him. Mm-hmm. But it fails him pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. All right. That brings us to another middleweight bout. Chris Curtis, Joaquin Buckley. And this will be a thriller. I love oh, this yeah. fight. This is a perfect booking. Inspired, inspired booking. Yes. Just take two stocky power punchers. <clears throat> one of whom is um is like a a pretty deft defensive fighter and counterpuncher. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other of whom is is a way more consistent high output fighter. Yeah. Just and and, and such a. I mean, they both are very select a strike fighter although uh, i mean buckley more so honestly i i would give curtis more of that credit but that that fight he had against jack hermanson really did expose uh yeah bad what bad day chris curtis looks like and it was a fighter very stuck on one idea Mm -hmm. a bad day which continues to stay with him like i i don't hold it against him too much as a guy like It, it looked like an incredibly frustrating experience, mm-hmm. but also like he's c- clearly still bitter about it. Every time yeah. he brings it up, he's like, oh, he's a coward, that Jack Hermanson. It's like, I mean, even I, though they made nice immediately after and Hermanson was incredibly gracious. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, think he's just mostly joking, but, you know, the, the, well, you know one yeah. has to realize that there's a part of Chris Curtis that hangs out with Sean Strickland all the time. Yeah, exactly. So that guy does exist, bitter and frustrated. Yeah. No, <laughs> there's not enough success in the world for Sean Strickland to be happy. <laughs> yeah, very, very I hope, true. I hope he knows that and to, like is willing to live with that in a good way. You know. Um. <clears throat> I know. I know. Yeah. Probably not. But... I, my hopes are not high. No, I know. Anyway, cool fight. These guys are going to yeah. share a range. One of them is, I think, just technically decidedly better, but uh, the other, like, just delivers so consistently that he can't help but find some opportunities. Yeah. And, like, the, it'll be great, too, because they're two middleweights who are, for once, will be with guys that are their same size. Mm-hmm. You're going to be getting to. They're not going to have to be punching up to each other at all. Mm-hmm. Two short brick shit house middleweights that will that land with power mm-hmm. and fight with consistency. Um, how can you not pick Chris Curtis though? Yeah, you gotta. The the book on Joaquin Buckley is that he is a very pattern driven fighter yes that his combinations are pretty predictable they're all right left right left right left 
Um, he does, you know, he does go to the body. He does mix in the occasional weird strike or whatever. But for the most part, his 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 striking uh, comes on these really, you know, these really predictable sort of tracks. And then rhythmically, and this is the big thing, much like um, early days Josh Emmett, yeah. rhythmically, you you just sort of get his timing like within the first few minutes of the fight. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't he doesn't have any ability to change it up. He moves straight forward and straight back yeah, and that too. attacks at the same tempo, and he picks a lot of targets. So you yeah. always have to be a little cautious about what is coming at you this time he attacks. Mm-hmm. But if you time, if you know to time when he's moving forward, yeah. you will always find Joaquin Buckley on the end of something. Same tempo, same power on every strike, yep. and... Um, is not particularly clever about actually getting into the range from which those strikes are effective. He just kind of, you know, yep. jumps in. So yeah, Chris Curtis is going to uh, have a field day timing precise counter punches here. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it'll be interesting because uh, Buckley will get lots of opportunities to land something. Curtis is a great timing counter puncher who stays really solid and consistent over every round, mm-hmm. but he does tend to take a few less opportunities than he gets. Yeah. So Buckley will likely get chances to land with pretty good regularity over the stretch of rounds and then eat a few huge counter shots. Mm-hmm. And it'll be about how much Curtis makes of those counter shots in each round. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ride, ride with you and pick Curtis just because it is such a, it should be such a, a right fight for him, mm-hmm. but I, I'm going to love to watch it. There's oh yeah. Nothing about this. I mean, you're basically looking at Chris Curtis against Phil Hawes again, but what if Phil Hawes was way more durable and a little less predictable? Yeah, not like, or a little more predictable, rather more, more durable, predictable. more predictable. Yeah, but not like immortally durable either. <laughs> like no. you, you not could... immortally durable, but more durable than Phil Haas because he has enough to survive some exchanges. Yeah. Buckley doesn't do; he doesn't have tunnel vision. To his credit, like yeah. he seems like a fighter who would. He seems like a fighter who would be so intensely focused on what he's going to do in the moment that he would just get absolutely wrecked and blindsided by everything. Yeah. But it's much more of a, I have accepted that I am going to be hit, that I am going to fight at this tempo at this speed. Yeah. And most of the time he just shakes it off and can keep moving. Yeah. It's really just the head kicks that he can't figure out. Yeah. He's got that same slip again, the timing problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's going to be fun. And I also think that another advantage for Curtis here is that, um, we have a recent example of Buckley doing too much and wearing himself out. Mm-hmm. And Curtis himself is a dogged body puncher. Yeah. Uh, even more consistent in that regard than Buckley, who's a quality body puncher in his own right. Fascinatingly, Buckley's the favorite here. Opened at minus 125, got up as high as minus 113. Is currently down to minus 160. His people Curtis... really not impressed with that Curtis Hermanson performance. Yeah, but... Like, people got to realize how Jack Hermanson works. Yeah. You know, Hermanson, we even saw it in the Roman Delidze fight. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give you anything. 
Mm-hmm. You know, most of that fight was absolutely just Hermanson dominating Roman Delizzi everywhere. Mm-hmm. Just picking him apart, leaving nothing to chance, nothing at all. And then he hit that easy takedown. And you're looking at like him fighting off five submission attempts in 20 seconds before getting mm-hmm. tapped or getting TKO'd via freaking like calf slicer back mount. Yeah. It's an absolute insane sequence. Yeah. And boy, was it clear how much Hermanson loved having a huge reach advantage on Curtis. That yeah. really, really clicked for him. Yeah. Uh, and sort of helped me understand a lot of the more anxious striking we see from him against guys who aren't Chris Curtis's size. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like, for example, Delidze. He, he yeah, wasn't he, even nearly as smooth or aggressive off the back foot in that fight. Yeah, he, Curtis, he was beating Delidze, but there were there were multiple minutes where they would just look at each other and yeah. do nothing. Curtis, it was like, I can jab and kick as much as I want. And this guy, he has to do something obvious to make to make me pay for it. Yeah. So Curtis opened at plus 110, dropped down to minus 110, and is currently up at plus 133. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, these are worse right now. These are the worst odds Curtis has had since his, you know, since before he beat Phil Haas and uh, Brendan Allen back to back. It really, like, he had better odds against Jack Hermanson at this point. So I think that's an overcorrection. Yes. Agreed. All right. That brings us to another awesome bout. Featherweight fight, Billy Quarantillo, Alexander Hernandez. And I really like this fight a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure this is you, isn't it? No, nah, I think we've gotten way off of our rhythm. But oh, you're right. It should be you. Yeah, I just t- completely took the lead on the last one, I think. Yeah, I My think that's because for- I took the lead on... One of the others. Yeah, just, it's, it's just my passion for Chris Curtis. It's just your Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is um, just like the last fight, really, like a matchup just made to deliver action. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like the last fight, I don't think figuring out who to pick is particularly difficult. Yeah. Just because, like, Alex Hernandez, is, his problems are, at this point, very well understood, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, much like Joaquin Buckley, he has some of the same exact mechanical yeah. issues. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, a certain level of fighter, his his speed and his power, his aggression, these can be overwhelming. And then at a certain point, the opponents are experienced enough or athletic enough that that either they they've seen it all before, they're not surprised by the sort of flash of his striking. And they realize, oh, he puts himself completely out of position every time he's done throwing. Yeah. I can just counter him, and then I can push him back, and he's going to run away in a straight line. Like, I can start carving him up the moment he stops throwing those impressive strikes. And unfortunately for Hernandez, he doesn't have any of Buckley's variety. Yeah. Like, Buckley at least makes you have to make that, take that guessing game of, he's coming in, I don't know with what. Yes. You know? I can and time Hernandez, it, but what's Hernandez, it going to be? Yeah. Hernandez, it's going to be like, well, he's going to start punching my head here in a minute. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he doesn't even go to the body. 
Uh, not really. No. Um, yeah, and, and Quarantillo, um, like Chris Curtis, you know, a limited fighter, but an incredibly sort of reliable known quantity. Yeah. You're going to get a slow build of relentless pressure. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a completely confident willingness to take whatever the opponent dishes out if it means dragging them into his kind of messy fight. You are going to get a healthy mix of pressure striking and takedowns to keep the opponent off balance to help exhaust them. Um, It's obviously he's, he's slower. He's not a great defensive fighter. He's going to walk right onto some of Hernandez's strikes early. Yeah. But it will ultimately be a messier version of, of what Cowboy Cerrone and Hanata Moicano did to Hernandez. Yeah. That, that is, that's that's what I got to bank on as well. He's going to create a fifty, a reasonably 50-50 exchange, maybe even losing exchanges. But yep. then he he's going to be the one who's willing to extend them and chase after Hernandez, who, again, his positioning goes to absolute shit as soon as he's done with his three or four punches. Yeah. Footwork falls apart. Stance falls apart. Straight straight line retreats. Zero defense. Flinching like he's uncomfortable. It yeah. he, he hates it. He hates when you extend the exchange and follow after him when he wants to reset. Yep. I will say that one of the things that does give me more pause here that makes me I'm picking Quarantillo as well. Mm-hmm. I think that you know that dynamic Quarantillo, the way he could especially the way that he's been pressing his jab lately. I really mm-hmm. love to see that for a guy who is banking on being tough and busy. It's great to see him start doing that behind a strike that is a little safer and a little easier to throw mm-hmm. than just wi- winging wild hooks into the pocket and initiating a clinch, you know? Um, but I will say there are there are a couple of small notes of concern here. First mm-hmm. of them being, for Hernandez, moving down a division is probably a a good way to restart his wrestling game. Oh, I didn't even consider that. And make that show up a bit more for him when he's, he's going to be the bigger guy. lightweight though. Yeah. That's got to be a tough cut for him. Oh yeah. It's, if it does, if the cut doesn't go well, then, you know, all bets are, but the fact that he's so, it's so, so much muscle, muscle yeah. cuts a lot easier than fat. Like if sure. he was just out of shape or, you know, just kind of, a little more doughy. I, you know, I think there's like a reason that a guy like Jose Aldo ended up being able to cut to bantam weight so well, yeah. even when it didn't seem like he should be able to. It's just because the muscles hold water and yeah, release it better. Looks like he's like 4% body fat. Yeah. So I, that cut might not be as bad. And for Quarantillo, if, I mean, if he can pr- press that into a real advantage, Quarantillo has, you know, he has often banked on the idea that he can just scramble his way out of trouble. And like Gavin Tucker took him down seven times. Yep. On his way to beating him. Uh, There is a path through to victory for Alexander Hernandez there. If he can make it start working because Quarantillo is not the athlete he is, you know, there's a chance for him there. There's a chance for him to treat this like Chris Gritzmacher, you know? Yeah, sure. Until is a better athlete than that, but it's a similar kind of matchup where you've got a guy who's really high output and durable and banks on being able to outwork people, and Hernandez just went out there and demolished Gritzmacher. 
Yeah, but he is considerably better than Gretzmacher. He is. He is. And that's why I'm picking him. I think the dynamic, if even if Hernandez goes out and has a really good first round, that the dynamic will slowly build more and more momentum as Quarantillo just refuses to be cowed in any way. Mm-hmm. And especially the fact that he's using his jab more means that he can he can start instigating the pressure that Hernandez hates at an earlier point in Hernandez's drive to push forward. Mm-hmm. And that can start to break Hernandez's momentum more significantly than just trying to land big in the pocket when Hernandez steps inside. Yeah. And I think we are also seeing for Hernandez, the um, we're, we're, we're seeing a little, uh, a little style matchup PTSD. Yeah. Each successive time, like somebody manages to do this to him, they, they just outlast him and start ramping up the amount of times they're able to, to, to lengthen exchanges and, 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 and pursue him. Uh, he like broke against Moicano. Yeah. No, um, it's sooner than he did against Cowboy Cerrone where he yeah. was, he like refused to believe what was happening for a long time in that fight. Yeah. Moicano, it was a very much a, not this again reaction. Yeah. That Cerrone fight broke something and yeah. he's been trying to figure out how to recapture it ever since. Yeah. And good fights for him make him think that he's figured it out. And then he goes back and has another fight, and he's like, okay, I'm ready to be that guy again. And his opponent starts going after him, like Moicano did, and like Dober did, and like Tiago Moisish even did. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, God, I'm right back here. Like, it didn't work. I didn't solve it. I thought I had. And the fact that he's dropping down a division mm-hmm. kind of suggests, like, this is another, like, okay, I'm going to solve it this way. Uh huh. And that's... You know, it's dropping, changing weight is never the answer. If what you're looking for is a real solution to a real problem. Yeah, it is. It is. If you're just looking for fresh matchups because you spent your nickel at whatever weight class you were at, like like Aldo, like RDA, like Frankie Edgar, Mm -hmm. then, yeah, changing a division will be like, well, there's fresh guys to fight. I can get fresh top five, top 10 fights that are interesting because I yeah. fought everybody in my old division. Yeah. The weight class change is a workaround. It does not actually take the problem head on. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. You know, it's, it's fighters go through some seriously brutal weight cuts, Yeah, but it's difficult in a way that like you're a fighter. This is the kind you know, you are the kind of person who can deal with this kind of difficulty. It's pain. Yeah. It's exhaustion. You know, like, it's just a, it's like an endurance test added to your camp. Yeah. And in, in a way you kind of like, like that it's simple. It's easy to understand the kind mm-hmm. of difficulty a weight cut adds the difficulty added by having to technically revolutionize the way you fight is a whole a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why most fighters don't even know where to begin and don't, don't make that kind of improvement. Yeah. Odds on the bout. Hernandez is the underdog. Opened at plus 180, dropped to plus 145, currently plus 138. Quarantillo opened at minus 210, jumped up to minus 170, currently minus 167. Yeah. I think we got to see Hernandez string more than one win together in a row before I start just thinking, oh, yeah, no, he's going to go out and he's going to win this tough fight. Yeah, and and it may be – I mean, I will point out just – just to remind everyone, it's possible Hernandez handles the weight cut fine. Looks like a guy who might. Yeah. 
it's also always possible a weight cut is disastrous. Sure. I mean, we've seen way too many fighters be like, yeah, I'm fixing my problem. I'm dropping down a division and they go down that division. They clearly have the worst weight cut of their whole career. They get smoked and then they turn right back around and go right back up to the division they just left. Yeah. This could be one of those rare fights that makes Quarantilla look like a first round power puncher. You don't, you never know. All right. That brings us to a featherweight bout. TJ, another featherweight bout, I should say. TJ Brown, Eric Silva. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this right now, and you you can feel free to disagree with me. Mm -hmm. All three of the rest of the prelim bouts, I think, have absolutely one note to them and will be decided on that (laughs) one note. Yeah. No, I think that's that's pretty, pretty, pretty accurate. Like these, the rest of these fights are just like, oh, this guy does this, that'll be enough. That that's it. Uh huh. Um, Brown is a really slow starter, really tentative, really has to get beat up and get into the thick of a fight to figure out how the fight needs to go. Yeah. And uh, often makes a lot of mistakes in the meantime that can cost him a lot in getting there. There's no safe path for T.J. Brown to winning as the fight goes on. You know, this is a guy who's picked up losses to all sorts of people over his whole career uh, by all sorts of different ways, knockout, submission, decision, just because, and even just like cardio or whatever. He has to get in there and mix things up and take some lumps. And if if he can get into a really hard fight and survive it, he can find ways to win but it's all learned through the fight for TJ Brown. Yeah. And I like TJ Brown. I mean, he's the kind of fighter that I like. He's very crafty, um, super well-rounded, a great one of these. Yeah. Like you said, a great problem solver. Yeah. Doesn't come in having solved any problems. Yeah. (laughs) Never, never. First rounds for him are always atrocious and not a great athlete. So even when yeah. he does come up with good solutions, like there's no guarantee anything. Exactly. I think I was very impressed with his, um, his performance against um, Kai Kamaka. I mm-hmm. thought he did a great job making adjustments. I also think that it's very questionable. He actually won that fight. Yeah. He probably should have lost. And, you know, uh, a, a, phys- a similarly wild and just much more physical fighter in Shailan Nerdembeke was mm-hmm. able to just roll through everything at every point and just keep winning. Mm-hmm. Eric Silva has an incredibly simple one-round plan. And it is just go out blitz into the clinch with hard strikes, rip his fighter, his opponent to the mat, take their back as quick as he can and submit. Mm -hmm. And it's just a simplistic flow ready to catch you off guard. You know, he could easily be one of those dudes who comes into the UFC and has like three or four really good wins. And then everybody's just like, Oh wait, no, I'm ready for you. Right. Um, but this will be one of those wins. Like Brown starts terribly. Silva's going to go out there and have a dedicated idea of exactly the five things he wants to put on this guy mm-hmm. to finish him. And that's what we're going to see. I, I, I would bet. Yeah, probably. You know, that, that, the kind of, he's, he's big. 
He's extremely focused on doing his one thing. Yeah. Seems like TJ Brown just may not get the chance that he needs in every single fight to make the adjustments. He is. Yeah. When he wins, it is only because he survives and, and he survives long enough to adjust. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So. There's nothing interesting to, to me about fighters like Eric Silva, though. Like you, you, you know, this is such a common thing in the UFC. Like, the yeah, guy who I mean, does one thing and then it, it it gets it works until it completely stops working, and then it turns out he's because that one thing worked so well, he's developed nothing else to back it up. Yeah, and I mean it also, you know, like it is worth worrying about too if you're looking at like the future of Eric Silva that it really is like a takedown to back take game based off of fighting on the Mexican regional scene. Yeah. Where he's the only takedown artist. Yeah. You know? And so you really do wonder like when he gets further up at this level, what happens when he has to fight Bryce Mitchell? Or, you know, what happens when he has to fight Ilya Tapuria or mm-hmm. Lerone Murphy, you know? Mm-hmm. But here against TJ Brown, he should roll. Yep. Odds on the bout, dead even, which I'm really shocked by, honestly. Usually guys coming off contender series get a bump. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm i okay with it. Like, if Eric Silva's one thing doesn't instantly win in the fight, I don't know what else he's going to do. Yeah. Just... TJ Brown's a great, TJ Brown is a prospect loss generator kind of fighter for sure but yeah yeah i i just you know guys like kai kamaka and charles rosa are the perfect kind of we'll let you hang around and solve them yeah opponents eric silva does not seem like that dude so yeah. I'm, I'm a little surprised uh silva opened at minus 225 jumped up to minus 155 Maybe there's other reasons to be concerned with UFC recent UFC betting scandals because he's jumped from minus 150 to minus 114 in the past couple days. And wow. TJ Brown opened at plus 190, dropped to plus 123, and jumped from plus 122 to minus 107. It's not a huge jump. No. But um, I'm a little surprised at it, honestly. Mm-hmm. All right. That brings us to a flyweight bout. Vinicius Salvador, Daniel Da Silva. I mean, if Daniel Da Silva was any better, I, <laughs> you know, like yeah. Salvador is a is the striking version of um, Eric Silva. Yeah, as you said, he's he's big enough to intimidate a lot of people, and he hits pretty hard. Yep, and he knows he hits pretty hard. He fights like a guy who knows he pr- hits pretty hard. He pretty much just walks forward. And throws generally some kind of bullshit with his right hand mm-hmm. so he can whip a big swinging left in there and try yep. to take somebody's head off. And he will get hit hard every time he oh my God. throws that big swinging left because he is dedicated to standing right in the pocket in front of somebody. That's, I mean, it's, it's so wild because, like, the dude has a really sharp one-two and a really yeah. sharp range striking game, honestly. Like, when he's out at a distance... He he cracks people consistently and well, and it works great as a pressure fighter out at range. Yeah. It's just that he always then takes that extra step to start swinging hooks, 
And the moment he does that, all of his opponents start hitting him really hard back. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, he's gotten a bunch of knockout wins through a whole variety of wild, brutal strikes. And he also has four, or three, you know, two knockout losses, a submission loss, and a split decision loss. Yeah, because he is right there to be hit, and he's right got there. zero discipline. Uh, that's yeah. the, the real thing. He's got zero discipline. Yep. Um, he can't stick to the things that are like safely effective, and he can't patiently build to the things that are like violently, decisively effective. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that that fight he had on the contender series with uh, what's his name Ross. I mean, like, yeah, boy, yeah. did he get hit! Oh yeah, so hard and so clean. Um, and like, yeah, I, I thought he was actually going to get like completely turned around and KO'd at various points because yeah. he would just stand there. Uh, he's one of these fighters who, because he puts so much into his shots, his form just rapidly breaks down. Mm-hmm. the longer he spends in range with somebody. Yep. And so it amplifies the effect that the clean counter punches have on him. Cause he's not even like in a position to absorb them. Um, you got to give him this, you know, he's tough. He's tough yep. in exactly the way you don't want to be finding out so often about a fighter so early in his career, but uh, he's tough enough to make this work for now. Yep. And it'll be um, a lot of fun. Yeah. And De Silva's not that tough. Yeah, that's the big thing. Is that for three minutes this fight will be awesome because Absolutely. Daniel De Silva will come out of the gate throwing with power and variety yep. and creativity and really accurate right yep. from the beginning. That's one of the things. Like, I picked Daniel De Silva over Victor Altamirano, and like I went back and watched that fight, and it's like, man, he had that fight won for two minutes. You were like, I made a good pick. Yeah, <laughs> and then he just falls to pieces. Yeah, his opponent shows any durability, any ruggedness at all, yep. and he just gets more flat-footed, more desperate, more panicked, and everything falls apart. And he's got none of the technique to stop this from happening, especially like yep. uh, again, offensively dangerous, but stands super tall, right in range, yep. falls into the pocket, and um, and doesn't have the kind of chin that uh, Salvador has. So yep. So you got to pick Venetia Salvador. For sure. Odds on the fight. Salvador is the favorite. Opened at minus 200. Dropped to minus 205. And recently dropped from minus 201 to minus 233. Daniel De Silva opened at plus 170. Got all the way down to plus 164. And is currently up at plus 189. I get it. Mm-hmm. If De Silva's not beating Victor Altamirano, then there aren't going to be a lot of flyweights that he's going to win against. Right. <laughs> All right, that brings us to a bantamweight fight. Cameron Simon against Stephen Coslow. And um, I will admit, I'm going to sound a small note of caution here. Because mm-hmm. I did say these all three are pretty like easy picks to me. And this one is too. But I am always very concerned when a management team or fight promotion pulls all of a fighter's tape off the internet, mm-hmm. which Steven Kozlo's team has done. Cause it's the, the video, the footage is out there of all of his fights. You can go and you can see them. They come up on MMA core. They have links or they have uh, ports of all of his YouTube videos. 
of on of all of his fights on YouTube. But each one, when you click on the page, it says this this uh, this video is private. Yeah, they have been they have been particularly locked away from sight. Yeah, and that always makes me worry that a team is just covering for how trash their their fighter is and how obvious his flaws are. You, there is his one uh, fight against Jonathan Ortiz. There's a on... day. On his uh, his personal YouTube page, okay, Let's see. which is Jonathan. like ring ringside camera footage, basically. Okay, I I also found his his Josh uh, Siula fight is out there. Mm-hmm. His debut, he fought somebody named Ginseng Dejour. <laughs> that is an awesome name, <laughs> Ginseng Dejour. Oh my God! This man's my hero. He's the dude in the in. If you watched his, uh, somebody put together a highlight reel for Coslo. Uh-huh. He's the dude with the massive head of dreadlocks, where two dreadlocks came unglued or unstuck, and he spent the rest of the fight trying to paw them back into place while getting oh, beat man. beat up relentlessly. That is the name of a guy from Florida. Ginseng de jour. <laughs> rocks <laughs> that's one of the best fighter names i've heard in a long time that is really i don't even know why i didn't notice it the first time i was just yeah sounds like the name of a care of like the protagonist of a really trashy romance novel yeah <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> thing to sure that's great i i really hope that's not a nickname i hope that there's a birth certificate with that on it <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, otherwise for Kozlo, what's obvious from his highlight reel, what's obvious from his record, what's obvious from the fights out there that exist is he basically rushes the clinch, looks for a big double leg, and then immediately goes for back takes and ground and pound. Yeah. And that's the whole game. And... um Maybe it's not enough to beat Cameron Simon, but I think it is. Because mm-hmm. that fight that Simon had again on the Contender Series against Josh Wong Kim was not impressive. Mm-hmm. And it re- it included him getting taken down really quickly and uh, just like out-hustled for a while on the mat. Where, you know, he, he doesn't have, he didn't look like he had any takedown defense at all mm-hmm. when Wong Kim went and shot on him. Yeah, which is literally the only thing he would need to beat Kozlo, as far as we can tell. Yeah. So Kozlo has been a consistent and decent uh, first round finisher out of this style, you know? It's not like he's getting people down and not figuring out what to do with them. He's submitted mm-hmm. every single opponent he's had in the first round. Those opponents aren't very good, but I'm not sure Simon's very good either. Mm-hmm. So I'll take Coslo. Yeah, I'll say this. I mean, Simon's a fun kicker. Yeah, he, he definitely, if he can keep this fight standing, he's got some good power kicking that he can do, and he otherwise keeps a very even, if unambitious, pace as a striker. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, the moment I see a guy like get taken down and like resort to like slapping his opponent's back because he doesn't know what to do to improve his position. Yeah, that's not a good sign. And like I say, what I have seen out of Kozlo and what shows up clearly in his record is that he basically just goes out there with a determined single game plan of I'm going to go out. I'm going to take this person down and I'm going to out grapple them. Mm -hmm. So. I'm willing to trust it. If he if he starts getting stranded on his feet, though, yeah, he'll probably lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. On that point, I obviously need to get out of here because my dog will not stop fighting at me. Uh, odds on the fight. Uh, Kozlo, Simon opened at minus 150, dropped to minus 230. It's down at minus 358. Kozlo opened at plus 130. It's currently up at plus 278. I know this is a short notice booking and everything, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't see anything like no special about it at all. Nothing warranting a line that heavy either way. No. It it's because, just, it, this it, is it, one of those lines awesome. where it's it's because only one person has bet. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be, right? Yeah. Like I, I, At best, it would be a 50-50 toss-up to me. Yeah. All right. On that note, you can find me on Twitter at TheZaneSound. You can find Connor on Twitter at BoxingBush. You can find both of us over at BloodyElbow.com. Give us a like, subscribe to our podcasts on Bloody Elbow Presents uh, Podcast Network on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all those good places. And we will be back in one week's time for the last UFC card of the year, Cannoneer versus Strickland, going down on December 17th at the Apex facility. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Vivis Section, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, and Radio Style Play-By-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloody elbow blog and as always on bloodyelbow.com